Cedric Diggory's insatiable lust for fish vaginas is out of control, while Willem Dafoe cosplays as Ursula the Sea Hag in a tale of isolation, paranoia, and madness. You're listening to Eddie V's Horror Show. Welcome back to the show, everybody, after more than a month of delays. But episode 8 is finally here, and we can talk about all the things you've been wanting to hear about, especially if you've been waiting to hear about a movie that features a slow-dancing makeout scene between Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe, and an up-close and in-your-face shot of a mermaid vagina. That's right, it's 2019's The Lighthouse. But before we get into that, I'm your host, Edward Villanova. And in addition to talking about spoopy things on this podcast, I also write spoopy things, and I like to help out other writers of spoopy things as well. And it's that whole part about writing spoopy things that kept me away for so long. A writing opportunity presented itself, as well as an opportunity to make some visual art, and I just couldn't pass it up. I mean, I am an author, after all, (laughs) before I'm a podcaster, so... I, uh, you know, it kind of took precedence. I'll tell you a little bit more about that project I'm working on at the end of this episode, but barring unforeseen circumstances, it looks like I will soon have another published work under my belt. So uh, that was the primary cause of this episode being so very late. Sorry, folks. Uh, other things have prevented me from uploading YouTube videos, but those are mostly technical difficulties, and that should just be a matter of time. I have several of them recorded and partially edited, I'm just, yeah. So if you follow me on Facebook or Twitter, you might be a little confused. You may have been expecting another visit from uh, fellow author Violet Church to discuss more true mysteries, but unfortunately, Miss Church was not able to join me as planned. So we're still planning on making that episode, and it should be out fairly soon. And, of course, our collaboration on the uh, Liber Monstrorum, or the Book of Monsters, is also still underway, and there will be more news on that as development continues. Now, uh, sorry if, if I sound a little rough today. I don't know if it's coming through on the mic or not. I am a little bit sick. Don't worry. Don't have the coronavirus. Uh, even if I did, you wouldn't have to worry, because as far as I know, it can't travel over airwaves. Who knows what they're going to discover about this virus next. But, uh, yeah, for at least for right now, you should be safe. So, <clears throat> uh, if you hear me clearing my throat a lot, coughing, sounding like I have smoker voice, that's why. Now, this is where I would normally kick off the episode with some listener-submitted true horror stories. But for this week's episode, I haven't received any new submissions, despite pleading and begging people on social media to send me your true horror stories. I keep hearing, we love hearing true horror stories. We want to hear more of them, but I'm not getting any right now. So as soon as I get some more actual true horror stories, I will be reading some more of those true horror stories on the show. But uh, so for now, uh, I'm going to do something a little bit different. Instead of sharing a true horror story or two, I'm going to include some two-sentence horror stories. If you like to read horror or follow a lot of horror circles, you've probably seen these before. And uh, I think they're a great exercise for writers. They, they train you to be concise. They help, they help you pack huge amounts of information and atmosphere into a story without slowing down the pacing through improving your precision of word usage. This is like uh, the purest form of flash fiction. If you haven't perused two-sentence horror stories before, uh, there's a great, well, actually not horror stories, but just two-sentence stories. There's a great example of a two-sentence story 
a story attributed often to Ernest Hemingway, which may or may not be erroneous, but it's a, it's a heartbreaking story masquerading as a newspaper ad, and it's only six words long. It goes like this. For sale. Baby shoes. Never worn. Ooh, doesn't that get you right in the feels? I've read that several times and it never fails to sucker punch my heart. So, so much sadness inspired by just six short words. But this is a comedy horror writing podcast, so forget about making people feel sad. Let's make people shit their pants and barf with both fear and joy. How much scare can you pack into two sentences? So from here on out, please... Continue to send me your true, scary stories from real life. But if you don't feel like telling a long story, make a short one up. I'll read them on the show. Please only submit your own work instead of sharing stories you found online. I know there's a lot of them. However, we are going to kick this one off with a few two-sentence horror stories off the internet. Uh, I'll share a few of my own as well. I had a friend actually pick these out, so I haven't read these yet. We'll see if they're any good. I think they're going to be sort of a cross-section of what you'll usually find when going to look for these uh, two-sense horror stories. Here we go. I was having a pleasant dream when what sounded like hammering woke me. After that, I could barely hear the muffled sound of dirt covering the coffin over my own screams. That's a good one. Me and uh, Mr. Poe are both pretty freaked out by the thought of being buried alive. Nice and chilly, that one. I like it. Alright, next one. I started a neck cracking habit because it relieves stress and I like the sound. But now the bodies are starting to pile up and I don't know what to do. (laughs) A horror pun. It is as scary as it is funny. I can't sleep, she whispered. Oh, I'm sorry. I can't sleep, she whispered, crawling into bed with me. I woke up cold, clutching the dress she was buried in. Ooh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Very chilly. She went upstairs to check on her sleeping toddler. The window was open, and the bed was empty. Oh, that's not scary. That's just horrible. I mean, as a parent, you would be terrified to find somebody stole your baby. But that's not how these are supposed to work. That's more like a description of a scary situation, not really a horror story. If I said, I'm going to tell you a scary story. I walked into work this morning, and I was shocked to find everyone was dead, and I found a bloody axe on the floor. Now, is that really a scary story, or is that just a terrifying situation I'm describing to you? Anyway, I never go to sleep, but I keep waking up. Aha! Okay. Now, that's more like it. Short and sweet and spooky. See, this is how less is more. This one is chilly, and it's even short for a two-sentence horror story. It's more about the implication than the narrative. I like it. I woke up to hear knocking on glass. At first I thought it was coming from the window until I heard it come from the mirror again. Okay, alright, not bad, a little tropey, but not bad. I think I've heard that one before. The last thing I saw was my alarm clock flashing 12.07 before she pushed her long, rotting fingernails through my chest, her other hand muffling my screams. I sat bolt upright, relieved it was only a dream, but as I saw my alarm clock read 12.06, I heard my closet door creak open. Alright, narrative heavy, but some scary implications. Some things inferred rather than told outright. That's what makes these great. Growing up with cats and dogs, I got used to the sound of scratching at my door while I slept. Now that I live alone, it's much more unsettling. 
Not bad. It's a chilly thought to lay in bed and hear something scratching at your door and you don't have any pets. The only problem is that the author mentioned dogs and cats, which makes me think that more like the neighbor's main coon got into my house rather than there's an oogie boogie scary monster at my bedroom door. Not bad though, overall. In all of the time I've lived alone in this house, I swear to God I've closed more doors than I've opened. <laughs> this sounds more annoyed than spooky. Like, shut a damn door for once, fucking poltergeist. There's nothing like the laughter of a baby, unless it's 1am and you're home alone. I guess we're left to assume that you don't have a baby, uh, otherwise that's just parent life. Like, God, kid, only a freaking baby would think something's funny at 1 in the morning. I needed to quickly run an SQL command to update a single row of an Oracle DB table at work. To my horror, it came back with 2,378,231 rows affected. Ah, haha, okay, a little SQL humor there. I looked out my window. The stars had all gone away. Yeah, that's called an overcast sky. It's not scary unless you left the window rolled down in your car. Okay, I feel like that's a pretty good sampling of some two cents horror stories. I write something similar from time to time. Uh, I'm thinking about publishing a collection of them, but they're, you know, they're a little bit different. They're horror haikus. Short, scary stories with a poetic twist. So, similar idea. Uh, if you don't know the rules of haiku writing, it follows a 575 format. Every haiku consists of three lines, with the first line having five syllables, the second seven syllables, and the third is back to five syllables. So, here are a few of my horror haikus. Buried in a box. Home for worms, feast for maggots. Still fighting to breathe. Long ride in the car. Back seat is not an option. The trunk is quiet. So wonderful when the sweet scent of her perfume survives the oven. Hundreds of long legs. No need for eyes. It hunts by smell. Your scent grows stronger. You didn't see it hiding in that dark corner. And now it's too late beautiful pale skin, dark eyes and hair, ruby lips, several rows of teeth. Many people die. Others will just disappear. Lucky are the dead. I hope those were nice and chilly for you. If you'd like to take a crack at that, uh, at writing some two cents horror stories or some horror haiku, and you'd like me to read them, send them to me either on the Eddie V's Horror Show Facebook page or on the contact page of my website, uh, edwardvillanova.com slash contact. Link in the show notes if you're uh, too lazy to type that out. <laughs> and uh, just as before, <clears throat> if you have a true horror story or a first-hand account of a spooky thing you've experienced and you'd like to hear me read it on the show, send that to me too. I still like doing those. Normally, I say you can message me on my personal Edward Villanova Facebook page, too. But with the changes Facebook has made to its security settings, I'm getting buried in friend requests and messages from fake Facebook accounts. So while you are, of course, certainly welcome to send me a friend request, if you don't want to get lost in the avalanche of fake accounts, send me a message in Facebook Messenger or something, or post something on my profile to let me know you're a real person. Say you listen to the show, tell me how much I suck, or some shit. Something that tells me you're not a robot. And not, hey, how are you? Or, 
hi, because that's what every robot says. Uh, seriously, this is not an, even an exaggeration. On Monday, I was getting an average of about 20 requests per minute. And while I would love to think that I grew that many fans overnight, it seems a little fishy. I mean, I am an optimist, but I'm not stupid, and uh, they're not hard to spot. Whoever programs them is not a native English speaker. Hello and greetings. My name Kevin. Or the ThoughtBots. You know, I get plenty of those too. The profile picture is like some OnlyFans model they stole off the internet with their boobs pushed up in the camera. And you'll get a message like, I'm wanting to make sex on you. Or the simple yet alluring, hey baby, spelled BBY. Does anybody fall for that stuff? I guess they must because they keep on doing it. Well, then again, I once read that only like 0.000000000001% or something of pop-ups ever results in a sale and they still crank those out so it's clearly not a results driven strategy. Maybe a risk versus reward since they can probably generate a billion of those for damn near free. But I digress. So yeah, the best way to contact me right now is through the Eddie V's Horror Show page or through the contact page on my website. Uh, or even through Twitter, at uh, Edward Villanova. Send in those stories and haikus. I'd love to read them on the show. All right, let's go ahead and get into the meat of the episode. We are talking about The Lighthouse today, the 2019 version starring Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe. Uh, written and directed by Max and Robert Eggers. Uh, I have to say the 2019 version because there is also a 2016 version as well. Sort of. Uh, it's a little convoluted. The movies are both similar and also incredibly different. Uh, both movies are based on an actual event, the Smalls Lighthouse tragedy of 1801, and the 2016 version uh, is more or less the true story of what actually happened. And the 2019 version goes completely off the rails into skull-fucking-crazy-land. Now, you're going to hear me talk about this movie in a way that highlights its absurdity. And it is absurd. It is balls-to-the-wall cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. But don't take that to mean that this is a bad movie or that I didn't like it. Far from it. This is an excellent movie. I loved every minute of it. I will say <clears throat> that it is not for everybody, especially if you have a problem with the most insanely brutal murder of a seagull ever imagined. But even if you don't like the story or even the plot of this movie, there's a lot to be commended in this movie. It's shot in black and white. I know some people hate black and white movies, but the Eggers brothers took full advantage of the boons of shooting a film in black and white. And that's the opportunity for contrast and light play. And this movie is so innovatively lit, it's incredible. There's a scene where Willem Dafoe is just laying down this hardcore, brutal, ass-raping curse on Robert Pattinson. And they have the scene lit from right under Defoe's friggin' nose hairs. It looks like he's about to swallow Pattinson's sparkly vampire soul. It's amazing. In fact, just pull up Google and type Willem Defoe The Lighthouse, and I guarantee you a picture of that scene will be in the top image search results. And you know what? I'll even do it right now.
Yep, bam, right there. Image result number two on Google. You don't even have to do an image search. It's right there in the recommended images. And the dialogue and the acting is off the charts. The Brothers Eggers put a real gem together here. Willem Dafoe is an amazing, crotchety old salty dog. In fact, he plays the saltiest of dogs. There has never been a saltier dog. Seriously, the shit he says in this is unbelievable. Shit only a dog with off-the-chart salt levels could pull off. None more fleet in 64 than she. We were on the brakes. A mutiny it were. Why ask you why? What's the terrible part of a sailor's life? Ask you, lad. Tis when the work stops when you're twixt wind and water. Doldrums. Doldrums. Eviler than the devil. Boredom makes men to villains, and the water goes quick, lad. Vanished. The only medicine is drink. But before we really get into the, uh, the movie, let's talk about what actually happened at the Smalls Lighthouse in 1801. It's still there today, uh, about 20 miles off the western coast of Wales. It's completely automated now. It runs on solar power. But historically, it has a history of being a hell of a post for lighthouse keepers, or wikis, as they're called, which we'll hear about in this movie. The true story of the Smalls Lighthouse involves either an accidental death or a murder, depending on whether you choose to believe the ramblings of a stark raving lunatic or not. But this wasn't the first time this particular shiny thing on a rock killed somebody. The waters around the Smalls are so incredibly turbulent, it was dangerous to leave the lighthouse. Waves frequently crash over the entire surface of the rocks the lighthouse is on, and if you're not inside, you can easily be swept off into the sea. From there, either drowned in the turbulent waters, or beaten to death against the rocks. In one particular holy shit instance, a rogue wave, and this is not in the movie, this is in reality, a rogue wave burst through the wall of the lighthouse like the Kool-Aid man with roid rage and continued upward through the shaft of the lighthouse till it reached the quarters where it broke through the floor underneath one of the keeper's beds, lifted it into the air with the keeper still in it and flung it into the ceiling, crushing the keeper to death between his bed and the ceiling. Poseidon is not a fan of this lighthouse, let me tell you. If that's not the doing of an enraged sea god, I have no fucking idea what is. So already, the Smalls had a reputation for killing people. You're killing me, Smalls. Gather round, laddies and lassies, and hear the tragic tale of the two toms. <laughs> a freak storm kept boats away for four arduous months. They ran low on food and supplies and were frequently drunk on contraband booze to pass the time, despite drinking on duty, being strictly forbidden. <clears throat> Speaking of drinking on the job, I hear a lot of podcasters do this if they're going to crack one open while they're uh, recording, and uh, that is what I'm doing. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and, and tell you. I usually drink when I do the podcast, but I never announce what I'm drinking, and today I'm enjoying a White Claw, the likes of which uh, the world seems to be in love with, including the Internet. They're pretty good. I like them. I'm having the grapefruit variety today, and it is lovely. I usually go for something a little uh, more on the liquor side, but um, today I felt like refreshing 
was going to be nice. So, um, yeah, pretty good. White Claw, big fan. Not a sponsor, but I would accept a sponsorship from you, White Claw. Please be my sugar daddy. So anyway, somehow, we're not really sure how, Thomas Griffith died in what is only described as a freak accident. Did Tom number two kill Tom number one? I don't know, and it seems like the truth is likely lost to history. But somehow, Tommy Tom Tom got dead, and Tom Tom Tommy was left as the only living person on the smalls. Now, the two men were known to publicly get into some pretty intense fights, and our boy Tom Howell was afraid that if he threw Tom Griffith's body into the sea, that he would be accused of murder. Now, that seems pretty damn stupid to me. The place already had a reputation for washing people into the sea, and it sounds perfectly believable to me that if he just said that dead Tom got washed off the edge, it would have been believed, but he didn't. Uh, he wanted old dead Tom to be present when relief came. Burying the body was impossible, because the lighthouse is not an island with dirt that can be dug into. It's perched on top of solid rock. And of course, leaving the body outside would almost certainly result in it being washed into the sea. So Tom Tom Tommy kept Tommy Tom Tom's body inside with him. And as you can imagine, he couldn't deal with this for long, especially when Tommy Tom Tom started to rot. When he couldn't deal with bunking with his deceased fellow Tom, Tom Tom Tommy built a coffin for Tommy Tom Tom. He still smelled pretty bad, and after a few days of trying to make the coffin airtight so he didn't have to smell old Tommy Tom Tom stank, he gave up and hung the coffin with a rope from a hook from the side of the lighthouse. This would keep him outside of smelling range, but and also up off the ground where he would be likely swept away. The unfortunate thing here is that the position of the hook made the coffin hang right outside the window of the keeper's quarters. And as the waves battered the smalls, they knocked the coffin against the walls and window of the lighthouse, not only keeping old Tom Tom Tommy from getting any sleep, but also the repeated bashing of the coffin against the lighthouse splintered it until Tommy Tom Tom's old dead face could be seen through what was left. Tom Tom Tommy... <laughs> That's Thomas Howell. Sorry, I'm having trouble keeping up, and you're probably getting tired of hearing all the Tommy Tom Toms and Tom Tom Tommies. Thomas Howell said that between his lack of sleep, the disturbing scenery, depression, lack of food, and constant drunkenness, he started to hallucinate. He saw Tommy Griffith beckoning to him through the window, and sometimes thought he heard his voice either on the wind or even inside the lighthouse with him. Thomas Howell had been reduced to a raving madman by the time he was finally rescued, and was so changed by the event that it said even his closest friends and family didn't recognize him upon his return. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say this was probably the end of his wiki career. <laughs> the 2016 version was put on by the BBC. It pretty much tells the story in a historically accurate fashion, and the tale is terrifying enough on its own without any embellishment. The only liberties they took was speculating on what exactly the Toms fought about before Tommy Griffith bit the dust, uh, and they speculate on uh, the way he bit said dust. It also assumes that it was truly an accident, whereas I think it's very possible that Tommy Howell killed him. I mean, being shut up in close quarters with someone you like 
for seven months can be stressful enough um, and make you want to slit their throat. Imagine being stuck up there with someone you constantly fight with. I hate being in tight quarters anyway. Trapped inside, I get claustrophobic. I'd have nailed his tongue to the beacon housing and watched him go around and around with a light for breathing on my cornflakes by that point. So, I understand. <laughs> I, would, I would not um, count it too far-fetched to find out that one Tom killed the other. Anyway, the 2016 version, the BBC version, uh, is very good. It goes from being a two-man show to a one-man show with both Tommies putting in powerhouse performances. I do recommend this movie, but kind of only if you haven't seen the 2019 version yet because it completely blows the first one out of the water. Michael Gibson and Mark Lewis Jones portray the Tommies in the original 2016 film. And make no mistake, these men are fantastic actors, but Defoe and Pattinson both put in such out-of-control, over-the-top performances, there's just no way to measure up. If you're trying to make something realistic, this circus that the Eggers brothers put together uh, is going to outshine it. There's just no way around it. It doesn't make one better than the other. It just makes one so much more entertaining than the other. There's really no competition. The major difference is that Defoe and Pattinson are playing very different characters from the ones portrayed by Gibson and Jones. Defoe and Jones both play Thomas Howell, with the name changed to Thomas Wake in the case of Defoe. But while Jones plays a bitter old salty dog with a troubled past and a chip on his shoulder, Defoe plays a man driven to the edge of madness by that past, and has maybe probably dipped a toe in. Does this sound like uncompromised sanity to you? Right. Protein forms swim up from men's minds and melt in hot Promethean plunder. Scorching eyes with divine shames and horror. And casting them down to Davy Jones. And if I tells you to yank out every single nail from every mold and nail hole and suck off every speck of rust till all them nails sparkle like a sperm whale's pecker and then carpenter the whole light station back together from scrap and then do it all over again, you'll do it! And by God and by golly, you'll do it, smiling lad, cause you like it! You like it cause I says you will! Hark! Triton! Hark! Hello, bid our father, the Sea King, rise from the depths full, foul in his fury. Black waves teeming with salt foam, just smother this young mouth with punch and slime. This dude talks about the light like it's his girlfriend. And we even get a brief shot of him chilling with the light at the top of the tower naked, basking in it. I can only imagine what ghastly shadows are being cast by Willem Dafoe's naked body. You're not going to signal Batman like that, Tommy. You don't even want to know who it is you're signaling right now, okay? <laughs> and Pattinson. Okay. So this is a minor spoiler. He's playing Thomas Howell, but they've changed the name to Thomas Howard for the movie. They probably changed the names because... Uh, they changed the story so much and portrayed the two Toms in some pretty unflattering ways. But anyway, the spoiler is that he says at first his name is Ephraim Winslow, which we discover was a real person, but not himself. 
I don't think that's true to the story. I don't think Thomas Howell initially lied about his identity. So, Pattinson's Thomas Howard is seriously thirsty for a piece of mermaid ass. He finds a carved figurine and whacks off looking at it on more than one occasion. Like, angrily, violently masturbating while clutching this mermaid figurine. What's possibly even crazier is that scene was apparently the first scene they filmed just to set the tone for how crazy this fucking movie was going to be, I guess. And if that was the reason, the Eggers brothers really knew what they were doing. That's actually kind of genius. Start off with nutballs crazy and let everybody know what they're in for. But despite how insane both the character and the performance is, I have to give it to Robert Pattinson, man. It takes balls to jerk it on camera. No pun intended. Especially as the first scene they filmed. And even outside of masturbation, like he put in an amazing performance. He's come a long, long way from sparkly vampire land. The guy is a damn good actor. They put him in a two-man show with Willem friggin' Dafoe, and you would expect his entire performance to be eclipsed by such a charismatic veteran actor like Dafoe, especially when the story calls for such insane acting, which, let's be honest, Dafoe is no stranger to. But he not only held his own, he had a few brilliant moments where he ran the scene, man. I just, I have a newfound respect for Robert Pattinson after this one. He is a legitimately competent actor, and not just teen girl-like handy, bicycle seat face or not. Alright, so let's get into this thing. I'm going to walk you through most of the movie here, so obviously, spoiler alert, uh, if you want to see this movie unspoiled, go watch it and come back. We'll talk about it then. It is a great flick, so if you have even half a mind to, I highly recommend going and watching it unspoiled. Now, the very start of the movie is the two Toms, Tommy, Tom, Tom, and Tom, Tom, Tommy, arriving at the Smalls Lighthouse. Their first night together, Thomas Wake, a.k.a. Thomas Griffith, a.k.a. Tommy Tom Tom, a.k.a. Willem Dafoe, proposes a toast to their four weeks on the island with some contraband hooch. And Robert Pattinson, a.k.a. Ephraim Winslow, a.k.a. Thomas Howard, a.k.a. Thomas Howell, says that's a no-go because drinking on the job is against regulations. Wake says some salty dog shit about not finishing a toast being bad luck, and so Howard toasts with drinking water, but apparently it's fouled. Uh, he spits it out as soon as he drinks it. So Wake tells him the sister needs to be tended to, and that's one of the things that Howard is in charge of. Wake says he'll keep watch up by the light at night, and Howard will do chores during the day, including tending to the nasty cistern, shoveling coal, I think, and refilling the light with oil, among other things, or kerosene or whatever it is. I don't know. <laughs> Their kerosene will come into play later. I'm not sure if it was for the light or not. Um, so <clears throat> he forbids Howard to go up to the light, claiming that space as his own and not to be violated by his presence. We then get a bizarre shot of naked Thomas Wake standing in front of the light, talking to it like it's a woman, calling her his beauty. At the same time, Howard is out on the ground smoking a cigarette after having worked his ass off all day and watching the light. God only knows if he got an eyeful of Defoe peen or not. <clears throat> but then he sees something in the water, so he starts to walk out to it. 
So just as an aside, we know from the description of the conditions at the real-life Smalls Lighthouse that walking out into the water is impossible. In fact, just walking around the grounds is treacherous. But that will be the least of the artistic license taken in this film. So anyway, <clears throat> he thinks he sees a dead body. Then we hear a woman shrieking and a brief shot of a mermaid in the water, or at least a person swimming toward the camera before Howard wakes up in bed. We're left to wonder whether it actually happened or if it was a dream or hallucination. We're never really made clear on that. <clears throat> but there's a lot of that sort of thing in this movie. So Howard gets up to do his chores, where we see that the cistern might be too far gone to really tend to. I think we might be left to believe that contaminated water uh, might at least be part of the cause of some of the hallucinations that happen throughout the movie. I don't know. That's another thing that I'm never really clear on, what the cause of the hallucinations were. But anyway. So with a wheelbarrow full of coal, uh, Howard's way gets blocked by a seagull while he's doing his chores. Or he somewhat hilariously throws coal at it to no result, kicks at it, and it won't leave. And the little squawks at him and flies at his face, making him flinch and cover up. Then he turns around to see Wake was watching from the gantry of the lighthouse. Isn't that the way shit goes down? Not a soul in sight until something embarrassing happens to make you look stupid or incompetent. Like fighting with a freaking seagull that flies in your face and makes you flinch. Then you realize someone was watching you. The only other human around watched him get humiliated by a seagull. And so Wake tells him at dinner, Hey, I saw you fighting with that seagull. And uh, Tommy Howard is like, man, yeah, I, I know. I know you saw me get embarrassed by a seagull. Uh, I think it was a bitch. Wake tells him at dinner, it's bad luck to piss off a seagull. I think he actually says to kill a seabird because they're the spirits of men who died at sea. Pissing them off or killing them might see you with a vengeful spirit after you. Or Poseidon or something. So <clears throat> Howard scoffs at the story and calls it tall, you know, says what he's saying is uh, just a tall tale. So Wake loses his shit and slaps him in the head and says, it's bad luck to be killing the seabird. Then he sort of he appears apologetic. He sort of shrinks back like uh, he hadn't been in control of his actions. He's like, Never mind me, lad. Just make me some coffee. He also tells Howard that the last lighthouse keeper he worked with went crazy and died, ranting about mermaids, sirens, and curses. He also was apparently enchanted by the light, claiming it had some kind of supernatural power or significance. Wake acts like this is nonsense, but he clearly seems to think there is something special about the light, making him to want to sort of commune with it on a nightly basis uninterrupted. That night, while Wake watches the light, Howard is kept from sleeping by a seagull. The seagull, I think we're left to assume, tapping at his window. He sits up and sees the mermaid figurine, and that's when we get our first scene of Howard whacking off to it. After that, he goes out for a smoke walk, as you do. And this time he does get an eyeful of Defopine, standing in front of the light, butt naked. <laughs> Fortunately, we don't have to endure Defopine. We don't have to see it. But Tommy Howard definitely got an eyeful 
of Defopine. And for that alone, Robert Pattinson deserves an Oscar. <laughs> anyway, so <clears throat> in the morning, we see it further demonstrated that Wake is a prick. Not only does he like to have his prick out in front of the light, but he is in fact a prick himself. He orders Howard around, interrupting him from more important duties to gripe at him for not sweeping and mopping well enough. And when Howard argues, Wake tells him <clears throat> that if he orders him to disassemble the entire lighthouse, suck the rust off each nail, and put it back together, he'll do it, and he'll do it with a smile. So in other words, you're my bitch and you'll do what I tell you to. He also constantly farts loudly and unapologetically just to lay some icing on that shit cake. We get a brief scene of Howard falling off a scaffolding while painting or cleaning the lighthouse. Um, <clears throat> and the seagull comes back to gloat. It lands on his leg and pecks at it and tears a hole in his pants before he can, like, he's not able to shoo it away. He has to, like, sit up and smack it off his leg after doing backbreaking labor. Howard sneaks up to the top of the lighthouse where Wake is keeping watch. It has a metal mesh grating on the floor, so you can kind of see up into the space where the light is. And the first thing he sees is a big glob of slime dripping down from the mesh ceiling. Then we can see some sort of long writhing tentacle like being dragged across the floor. And I'm not sure, I think we're supposed to be led to believe this is Wake transformed into something else, um, or, but also possibly it's some sort of creature summoned by the light, or what, we don't know, um, because the camera cuts to the next day before we get to see anything else. We just get like a close-up of Robert Pattinson's shocked face, or eyeball. I guess we're left to believe it was another hallucination. In the morning, Howard finds a either dead or dying larger seabird in the cistern. I'm not up on my birdology, so aviology. Some kind of seabird, either drowned in the cistern or drowning in the cistern. Then the seagull, I think, flies down and starts squawking at Howard. Then it flies up and dart, you know, like right into his face biting his hands and face. And Howard's like, okay, motherfucker, you want to fucking dance? And he grabs the seagull by the neck and commences to murder the shit out of this bird in the most violent fashion imaginable. Bashing it against the outside of the cistern, like, just forever, like, 12, 14 times, splattering blood everywhere, feathers are everywhere, until nothing is left of the bird but bloody pulp. I am sorry if you are an animal lover. That was probably overly descriptive, <laughs> but it's a lot worse watching the scene, believe me. Now, right after he kills the seagull, we see the weather vane on top of the lighthouse move, indicating that the wind has changed. Wake <clears throat> later blames the eventual storm on this change in the wind and blames Howard for the changing of the wind for killing the bird. If you thought Wake was a prick before, wait till you see how he acts when he blames Howard for the storm that keeps them there. So this happens the night before they're supposed to be relieved. That's when the storm hits, <clears throat> and it keeps them stranded there for seven months.
So there's this long shot of them standing out in the driving rain, and I mean, it just looks miserable. Already they're wearing like those old-timey clothes that look just god-awful to wear. Like, <laughs> there's no way they're comfortable. Like, like, everybody was just uncomfortable all the time back in those days. And <laughs> just to see them wearing those clothes, standing out in the driving rain for what must be hours, waiting for the tender, and the tender, that's, that's the boat that's supposed to come and pick them up. <clears throat> it just looks, it looks fucking horrible. The boat, <clears throat> boat's called the tender, not to be confused with the app tender. They're out there wanting to swipe right on the tender, but the tender, it must have swiped left because it never shows up. So they go back inside, and they decide, all right, well, the tender's not coming. Let's get fucking drunk. Even Howard is partaking by now. He's The two of them are boozing it up, and they really seem to get along a lot better when they're drinking. They're joking around, they're singing, they're even dancing together. And uh, we get a simultaneously hilarious and disgusting scene where a hungover Tom Howard is taking out the chamber pots, and these suckers are full to the brim with shit. Just, they've been neglected for a while. And he stumbles out to the craggy edge of the rock with one chamber pot in each hand to dump them. And when he dumps them, he doesn't just, like, dump them out into the ocean. He does it, like, with this long slinging motion, or he, he just, <laughs> just ejects the shit into the air, and the wind blows it all back onto him. And he just stands there, covered in shit, screaming. Um, I mean, I'll give him kudos for just screaming. I feel like I would have just dove into the water. Suicide or not, better than being covered in shit. So Howard goes about his chores while Wake sleeps off the booze. Uh, it's then he sees another body in the surf, covered in seaweed, so he goes to investigate. Instead of a man lying in the surf this time, it's a young woman who appears to have drowned. So he starts taking seaweed off of her, stopping for a minute to fondle corpse boob, like the classy guy he is. Then he gets down to her legs, or where her legs should be. Instead, moving the seaweed away, he can see that she has a tail of the fish variety. She's a mermaid. Then she opens her eyes and starts making mermaid noises. I mean, this should be Howard's wet dream, right? What, with all the jerking it to mermaid statues and stuff? But I guess her sounds were maybe a little too horrifying because he freaks out and makes a run for it. It's like somebody else who, uh, who reviewed The Lighthouse said it sounded like a combination of laughter, screaming, and whale calls and I'd say that's, that's about right um, I would have I would have maybe said shrieking instead of screaming just to give you a little little more idea of what it sounded like so anyway he runs away he's freaked out he's screaming too <clears throat> he gets upstairs uh, into the the keepers quarters and all his screaming woke wake up and wake is like what the fuck were you screaming for I was asleep and he doesn't know what to say. He doesn't really want to say, Oh, there's a mermaid down there! Because, I mean, 
he's gonna sound crazy. <laughs> so um, Wake just tells him to get to work, and he's like, mm, "Okay, we'll just pretend this didn't happen." And I guess he had assumed what I think we're left to assume, maybe, is that the mermaid was a hallucination. So, whether it was or it was not, is not ever really entirely made clear. So, while Howard's working, uh, Wake comes in and tells him that the storm's gotten all their food wet. So, just like in the real story of the Smalls Lighthouse tragedy, the food supplies are running very low. So, they decide to try to sustain themselves on whatever they can catch from a crab trap or a lobster trap. But Wake tells Howard, we're going to need to ration. Uh, we're going to run out of food. And Howard says, what do you mean ration? It's, it's been one day. The tender is coming. It's, it, maybe it's just a day late. We don't need to ration. It's not, this isn't an emergency yet. And Wake says, it's been a week. It's been a week, Tommy. We missed the tender a week ago. And every day... You say, it's only been a day, and I tell you, it's been longer, and you insist it's been a day, but it's been a week now. So either Howard's insane, or Wake is insane, or quite possibly, especially considering some of the other things he says later, Wake is gaslighting Howard. And I think that that's a very interesting twist, because it makes you wonder if he was responsible for the last... Uh, second lighthouse keeper going crazy. But either way, neither of the men seem to trust each other. And <clears throat> a little bit after this, Wake is sitting in a chair telling one of his bullshit stories about the time they all got scurvy on a boat and <clears throat> had to eat grass. And, uh, and while Howard is listening to him tell this bullshit story, he goes over to the table and he pockets a knife when he thinks Wake didn't see him. So <clears throat> that's that's a really good image of how um, the, the, the paranoia that's starting to brew, at least in Howard's mind at this point, and as we'll see later, the feeling is mutual. We'll talk about that more later. <clears throat> so despite their distrust for one another, they continue to get drunk. I mean, blind, staggering drunk. And uh, falling all over themselves, barely able to string a coherent sentence together. And turning around and arguing and getting at each other's throats until it nearly comes to blows multiple times. Both men, especially Howard, seem to be getting a little weird <laughs> as time goes on. Uh, he says that he'd give anything for a nice, big, rare, bloody steak. But he doesn't want to eat it. He wants to fuck it. And Wake breaks eye contact. He's clearly weirded out by this statement. And let me tell you, when you done out Crazy Tom Wake, you have lost it, my friend. Howard calls out Wake on one of his bullshit stories, and he tells him he's sick of his stories, he's sick of him. And Wake is like, but you like me cooking, don't you? Howard doesn't answer. And Wake is like, You're fond of me, lobster. I've seen it. You're fond of me, lobster. Still no answer from Howard. Say it, lad. Say it. Howard shakes his head and it's like, 
You can't make me say nothing. And Wake stands up and <laughs> he calls down a curse on Howard and it's a hell of a long-winded, overkill, rambling kind of curse involving Neptune coming out of the sea and smiting Howard in great detail until nothing is left of his body or his soul or anything that could remain of him, not even a memory, and that the pulp of what used to be Howard would become part of the sea itself. It's a three-minute long curse. I timed it. For three minutes, we get to listen to this just horrifying, rambling curse that Willem Dafoe is spitting at Robert Pattinson. And we get to see that scary-ass shot of Willem Dafoe's scraggly homeless man face lit from directly under his terrifying demon eyeballs while he rambles the most hate-filled curse you can imagine for three whole minutes. And finally... When he stops, Howard is like, Okay, fine, I like your cooking. Which is just a brilliantly written, shot, and performed scene by all involved. Even the guy in charge of lighting was Johnny on the spot with the scene. So well done, Eggerses. Well done, Defoe and Pattinson. And well done, whoever was in charge of that lighting setup. Which, according to my research, may or may not have been uh, Jaron... Blaschke, the cinematographer. And if so, well done, Blaschke. Afterward, we get shots of Howard sitting in the dark of the stairs under the light, just staring hatred at Wake and fidgeting with the knife he pocketed. So I think it's interesting here that both men appear to be crazy, but their crazy manifests in very different ways. Wake's insanity is out there for the world to see. He broadcasts his crazy cranked up to 11. On blast, crazy pride. Whereas Tom Howard's crazy is much quieter, lurking beneath the surface crazy. Howard goes in to steal the key to the light from Wake while he's asleep so he can go see it for himself. And almost like seemingly on a whim, changes his mind and decides to just slit his throat instead. So he gets the knife out of his pocket, and he's about to slit Wake's throat while he sleeps. But he wakes up suddenly, looks over the edge of the bed. Despite the fact that Howard is standing like six inches away from his face with a knife to his throat, he just goes, Queer way to wear your shoes. Then he farts and he tells him to get back to work, and rolls over and goes back to sleep. <laughs> Defoe, man, he's he's got something. A little while later, uh, we get another very memorable scene. Memorable, sort of, whether you like it or not. It's another Robert Pattinson jerking off scene while he's clutching the mermaid figurine. And he's also fantasizing about the mermaid and having sex with her. And that's when we get the aforementioned shot of Mermaid Vag. And I have to say, if mermaids had vaginas... This is what it would be. Like, never have I seen a vagina that looks so fish-like. I got something to show you. You know what that is? I saw Greg's vagina. Or big. <laughs> it's like, it's a gigantic vagina that you might tumble into if you're not careful. Apparently the Eggers has modeled it after uh, a shark's labia. And, I mean, I didn't even know that sharks had labia. I, don't, I mean, what do I know? I'm not a marine biologist. <laughs> but old Cedric Diggory loves him some fish poon, and he is going right at it. 
A little bit of interesting trivia. In older folklore, mermaids and sirens actually had two tails instead of one. One tail for each leg, and in between those tails you'd find exactly what you'd expect to find between two legs on a woman. It wasn't until the uptight Victorian era when the tellers of folklore were like, nope, mermaids do not have vaginas, and they redesigned the mermaids so there was no room for genitalia. And uh, I feel like this was around the same time that Post came up with cornflakes to keep people from masturbating. The thought of anything sexual was horrifying to people for some reason. I don't. I suppose I'll never know why. Maybe you had to be there. Uh, so we get a shot of a severed head in the lobster trap, followed by a tandem speed guzzling of contraband hooch, uh, and then some fevered drunken dancing from both toms, which devolves into a slow dance, and then they kiss. So romantic. Okay, not really, but almost. And for a second, Howard wondered if there was any part awake that felt like mermaid cooch. Then, both freaked out by the near kiss, they immediately roll into a fist fight and punch the shit out of each other. As bros would do. So instead of one kind of fisting, they decided on another. So directly afterward, Howard comes clean that he's not actually Ephraim Winslow, and that his real name is Thomas Howard. Despite Wake's pleading not to spill his beans, Howard does in fact spill said beans, and then force-feeds them to Wake, despite his best efforts to avoid it. He tells him the story of being a lumberjack in Canada, and having a boss that called him a dog and rode his ass all the time. He was planning to kill this boss, but he saw an opportunity to let him die in a logging accident, so he did. The boss's name was Ephraim Winslow, so he assumed the man's name and had been using it ever since. Having told this story either drives Howard to madness or imbues Wake with supernatural powers. You decide which is more likely. <laughs> Suddenly, Wake has vanished and his voice is echoing all throughout the quarters and over the smalls. Why'd you spill your beans? Why'd you spill your beans, Tommy? Why'd you spill your beans? Then suddenly Howard is on top of the lighthouse gantry, walking around the light, and he sees a man lying on the ground. He turns him over and sees that the man is him. It's himself. A hand comes down on his shoulder, and when he turns to see who it is, it's Wake, standing over him, naked, and a light begins to shine out of his eyes, brighter and brighter, until it's blinding. Jump cut to Howard running through the driving rain and the spray of the cresting waves out to the dinghy they would have used to board the tender if it had been there. He starts taking the dinghy out into the water, and Wake runs after him and starts hacking the dinghy to bits with an axe. This is either Wake showing his madness or a streak of sanity since Howard wouldn't last two seconds in the dinghy in that storm with 50 and 100 foot waves crashing all around him. So Howard runs back inside, cursing Wake for destroying the dinghy, and Wake hollers back that he was abandoning his post, he had to stop him, and that he's out of his mind. Howard accuses Wake of killing his old lighthouse keeper, 
the one Howard replaced, having found his head in the lobster trap. He also asks what Wake has been hiding up there at the light, and why he won't let him see it. So Wake decides to fuck with his head some more, and tells him he's a figment of his imagination. That he's still out in the forests of Canada. This is all a hallucination. He's really wandering through the woods, dying of hypothermia, rambling to himself. Which kind of does sound like he's gaslighting him. And it was likely gaslighting him before when he said it's been weeks. But of course, we do know. It took quite a long time before somebody actually showed up. Then we get a jump cut to what appears to be the two Toms trying to drink kerosene sweetened with honey in order to get drunk. So I guess the hooch ran out. But, uh, damn. That's desperate. Between the fighting and the crunk on kerosene rave parties, the quarters are a sty. And while cleaning up in a rare moment of sobriety, Howard finds Wake's logbook and sees that he's given him poor marks as a junior lighthouse keeper, calling him slow, violent, crazy, prone to whack off to mermaid sculptures. And he's recommended severance without pay. Ouch. So Howard calls Wake out on it and loses his shit again telling him that he's sick of his snoring and his farts and his stank, which is just the best. He says that Wake smells like hot onions fucked a farmyard shithouse, which is just the best insult I think I've ever heard. <laughs> and after he rants on for several minutes, Wake goes, uh, You got away with words, Tommy. And the two argue, uh, and it turns into a fist fight. Howard is beating Wake into the floorboards when he hallucinates that he's Ephraim Winslow. And then the mermaid, who he then takes a moment to make out with on the floor. Then he turns back into Wake mid-kiss. But not just Wake, like tentacled, barnacle-encrusted Wake, cosplaying as the horror movie version of Ursula the Sea Hag. So Howard resumes pounding Wake into the floorboards when Wake shouts, You're killing me! You're killing me! And Howard sees that he's not Ursula anymore. He's not avenging Ariel. He's just killing an old crazy man. It's just regular old dog-farting Thomas Wake. So now, certifiably cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, Howard makes him bark like a dog and leads him outside with a rope around his neck, leading him like a dog on a leash. Wake crawls out on all fours, and he makes him crawl into a hole they dug earlier to when they were getting the hidden contraband booze out. Then Howard picks up a shovel and starts burying Wake, who is still talking, even though dirt is flying into his mouth, until eventually he's still and quiet, and it appears that he's died. So Howard grabs his keys and goes back inside. He's pulling a cigarette out when the back door busts open and Wake comes rushing in with the axe, shouting, The light belongs to me! He buries the axe in Howard's shoulder. Howard just takes like a sedated look at it, and he beans Wake in the head with a tea kettle and knocks him to the ground. Then Howard picks up the axe and splits Wake's skull with it. It's brutal. Then he grabs Wake's keys up again and goes up to the light. Inside, Howard sees the light turning around and around like it should be. Then it stops, and the side opens all by itself. Howard stares into the light, the look of awe for a minute. We don't see what's inside. We actually see from the perspective of whatever's inside the light. Howard puts a hand inside. 
his look of awe turns to a mad, victorious laughter, and then into a scream. Madness, pain, fear. We're not really sure why or what he's experiencing, but he screams and he screams. And as the light grows brighter and brighter, widening out the camera, his screams become more wild and start to sound distorted. Then he's thrust backward from the light, and he tumbles down, down, down the spiral staircase, all the way to the bottom, and outside the lighthouse, knocking him unconscious. When he comes to, he's lying on the rocks of the smalls, with his abdomen split open and seagulls pecking out and eating his intestines. The end. Wasn't that a cheerful story, me lads and lassies? And crazy as balls to boot! Now, if you think that's madness just for the sake of madness, well, you'd be right for certain parts of this movie, but a lot of the really gonzo moments, there's actually a hidden meaning. This story is much more than just the recounting of the true events of the Smalls Lighthouse tragedy. In fact, it's hardly a recounting of facts at all, other than that two lighthouse keepers named Tom got stranded during a crazy months-long storm at sea, which resulted in death and madness, though not necessarily in that order. The last names were changed, backstories invented, supernatural elements added, or at least the suggestion of them. By and large, if anyone ever tells you, this is a true story, and then there's mermaids in it, you should be suspicious. While the movie was billed as having been based on the true story of the Smalls Lighthouse tragedy, Robert Eggers has even said it was more like the film was partially inspired by what happened at the Smalls Lighthouse rather than it being the true story of that tragedy. But there's a second retelling of an even older story going on at the same time. The Lighthouse is also a reimagining of a story from Greek mythology. Specifically, the story of Proteus and Prometheus. Willem Dafoe's Thomas Wake represents Proteus, keeper of all knowledge and wisdom and hater of sharing, while Robert Pattinson's Thomas Howard represents Prometheus, the rogue who stole fire and therefore knowledge from the gods and gave it to the people. But obviously that's represented in the film by Howard wanting to go up to the light and Wake's sharp insistence that the light is his alone. Proteus is an old man, but he has tentacles in place of his legs. Uh, he is often depicted as being covered in various small sea life like coral, barnacles, and, sh and uh, starfish, just like Wake is depicted during Howard's mid-fight hallucination throwdown. Proteus was a friend to animals as well, which is echoed in the movie by Wake telling Howard to leave the seagulls alone, and how his ultimate disobeying of this order cursed him and the smalls itself. Zeus was as much of a selfish prick as Proteus was, and he hated that the people had fire and knowledge too, uh, so for his transgressions he had Prometheus chained to a rock where an eagle would come pick out his innards for all eternity. A seagull is a poor stand-in for an eagle usually, but in this case I think it was spot on. With Howard being split open and eaten by Goals while he's still alive in the closing moments of the film, it seems Goals can be just as brutal. Some further Greek mythological iconography, uh, mermaid sightings are an omen of tragedy and misfortune, and mermaids are also conjurers of storms. So in the movie, Howard's seagull murder 
brought on the ire of the mermaids and the sea, bringing on the wild storm that saw them trapped on the smalls for seven months. Mermaids are also commonly depicted in paintings of Prometheus's punishment, watching as he is forever eaten alive by the eagle. The painting Prometheus's Martyrdom by Vasilis Botas is one such depiction. I think I got that name right. I'm not 100% sure, but I did my best. So uh, Robert Eggers was inspired by many turn-of-the-century works of art for this movie and recreated several of them for the film. Uh, a 1904 painting called Hypnosis by the German artist Sascha Schneider is another painting that inspired Eggers. It was recreated in great detail in a shot of Howard's hallucination where Wick is grabbing him by the shoulder and his eyes are glowing and, and he's naked. So all of this makes for a pretty fascinating film. Expertly envisioned and directed by Eggers, masterful performances by both Defoe and Pattinson, incredible work in lighting, set design, and sound, and even the editing is full of master strokes, the way scenes are cut together. The jump cuts, which are usually seen as sloppy, are clearly done on purpose and adding to the confusing effect of the movie itself. Now, we're horror writers. At least I am. I think some of you are too. So let's look at the writing now. What can an author like me and maybe like you learn from a story like The Lighthouse? Well, one big glaring thing that I can point out is the use of paranoia. The film starts out leading you to believe that Wake is off his rocker and Howard is more or less normal, even if maybe a little younger and less experienced. Then they turn the tables on you. We see that Howard is unhinged as well. We see a much more sensible and in control Tom Wake, leading us to believe that maybe Wake can be leading leading us to believe that maybe Wake can be an unforgiving taskmaster and an eccentric alcoholic, but a sane person nonetheless, while Howard is the one with the violent past, the obsessive behavior and the hallucination and the hallucinations. By the end we see that both men are stark raving lunatics. Whether they always had been, or they were driven to madness over the course of the seven months of isolation, and likely dehydration is unclear. But they keep you guessing about what the motivations of both men are, and whether or not the other can be trusted. Paranoia is an excellent tool writers can use to create tension, mystery, and atmosphere. Paranoia can become its own character in a way, um, being a motivating force that gives license to any character to do any given thing, within or without their established behavior patterns. Classic horror movies The Thing and Invasion of the Body Snatchers make heavy use of paranoia, both for atmosphere and as a plot device, and the non-horror movie The Hateful Eight is another example of the excellent use of paranoia. No one can be trusted. Everyone is a threat. Remember back in episode one when I said that Orson Scott Card's three types of fear were going to come up a lot? This is one of those times. As a brief recap, the three types of fear, according to Orson Scott Card, are dread, terror, and horror. And dread is the most potent. Dread is the knowledge that something is wrong, that there is a threat, but that the threat is not yet identified. It's much more terrifying to not know what the threat is or where it's coming from even more so than imminent danger. Dread is tension, and paranoia, when used correctly, is pure dread. Which scenario would you rather be in? 
a cage match with a lunatic where either you survive or you don't, or being trapped somewhere with three people and one of them is a murdering psychopathic serial killer who plans to kill everyone, but no one knows which one it is. I don't know about you, but I'd way rather have just one enemy who is a clear and present threat than to have three people who I have to treat as threats, never knowing which one actually is. Now, if you're a writer, your homework is to write a short story that's heavy in paranoia. If you can master that, it'll help you on your way to becoming a master horror writer. Or even just a writer in general. Hell, if you write something pretty short and pretty good, full of paranoia, and you send it to me, hey, if it's really good, I'll read it on the show. Alright, it's time to give you guys an update on my progress. Like I said at the top of the episode, I had a writing opportunity come up that I just had to jump at. And that opportunity was to be published in Theaker's Quarterly Fiction's fourth installment of the Unspotterpunk Anthology. Now, Unspotterpunk is an anthology of stories written in the style of Splatterpunk, which is extreme violence, over-the-top gore, and taboo topics like torture, genocide, or cannibalism. But it's Unsplatterpunk because it also has to convey a positive or uplifting message. A better world through eviscerated entrails. A great line from a great movie, V for Vendetta, goes like this. Artists use lies to tell the truth. Yes, I created a lie, but because you believed it, you found something true about yourself. I love that. No truer words were ever spoken about writers. We tell the truth by telling lies. Unsplatterpunk is the same notion, but on steroids. It's a bunch of writers spewing vile scribblings in order to make the world a better place. So I've written a story for the fourth installment of the Unsplatterpunk anthology called The Recycling Revolution. And barring something unforeseen like World War III or the zombie apocalypse, it will be featured in the next installment. I'm still working, I'm still working with the editor to get it nice and polished, and it should be coming out either late in 2020 or early 2021. I'll make an announcement when it does. If you're a writer and you would like to submit your work, there's still time. Uh, the deadline is midnight on Halloween 2020. And you can find submission information and submission guidelines at the Theakers Quarterly Fiction webpage, theakersquarterly.blogspot.com, and click on the Unsplatterpunk Guidelines link in the right side of the page. I'll put a link in the description. I have a recommendation for all you writers out there, especially if you're unpublished or you're fairly new to writing, I highly recommend giving a listen to the YouTuber Jenna Moresi. She's a writer and fellow Italian person. She doesn't really write horror, but beyond trying to write something spoopy, she knows her stuff about writing style and guidelines that are valid for any fiction genre. She's also really funny and fun to listen to. She has three novels out, Eve the Awakening, The Savior's Champion, and The Savior's Sister. Uh, they were self-published, and I believe all were commercially successful. Like, you can walk into Barnes & Noble and buy her books, even though they were all self-published. So especially if you're considering self-publishing, like through Kindle Direct Publishing or another self-publishing service, it'd be a good idea to give her channel a watch and hear what she has to say. I think she also hosts a, a, not a master class, but a, a, what do you call it? Uh, Skillshare. She has a, a Skillshare class, uh, which I, I haven't listened to it, but I, I hear, I've heard very good things about it. So uh, if you use Skillshare, uh, they are not a sponsor of this show. I know they sponsor a lot of podcasts, but um, if you do use Skillshare, uh, look her up. 
Um, she seems to really know her stuff. And uh, I'll put a link uh, in the description to her YouTube channel as well. Okay, ladies and gents, that'll about do it for this episode. Hopefully no more serious bog downs, and I'll be back next week for episode number nine with the ever-lovely Violet Church to talk more about real-life scary things. Thanks for listening, folks, and as always, stay creepy. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about the art of horror writing, check out my blog at edwardvillanova.wordpress.com. For updates about the show, my writing, art, and other developments, visit my website at www.edwardvillanova.com. To leave comments, suggestions, and requests, like my Facebook page, Eddie B's Horror Show. If you like what I'm doing here and you'd like to help keep content coming, please consider pledging to my Patreon. Information is on the website. And lastly, you can follow me on Twitter, at Edward Villanova.